October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 44, The Color Line, part 4. Last time, we looked at how the Adventist Church dealt with racial issues, specifically in Washington, D.C., This meant that General Conference President A.G. Daniels applied his Nashville policy, which was basically that black people should minister to black people and white people for white people. The Nashville policy wasn't official church policy, but Daniels pushed it hard for the sake of being able to preach the gospel without stepping into a cultural minefield. So, in 1903, Louis Sheaf's first church was not happy. Not only had the General Conference essentially taken 40 members out of their church to form a new church, but the pastor of that new church, Judson Washburn, then seemed to go out of his way to sideline First Church. Washburn wrote articles asking for money for his church and acted as if his church was the only one in Washington And with his aggressive PR campaign, Washburn managed to raise $10,000 for the work in Washington. And by the work in Washington, Washburn basically meant his church. So First Church was shocked. It felt as if the men in suits had ridden into town, stolen one-third of their members, and then ignored their existence. I mean, what do we get out of this, guys? If you asked First Church's white elder... Andrew Kalstrom, the General Conference had promised back in 1893 to give $5,000 to help pay off their building. By his reckoning, the General Conference was still $3,500 short. So First Church asked the General Conference for $3,500 out of the $10,000 that Washburn had raised. And for all we know, the General Conference just ignored that request. Since Washburn and Sheaf didn't see eye-to-eye on the color line, Sheaf also asked the General Conference for a new white pastor that he could preach with. A General Conference subcommittee decided that, quote, the committee does not see its way clear to grant the request, end quote. Now, that may sound really vague and unhelpful, and that's because the language the committee was speaking is known as bureaucracy, It's a unique language in that it uses many words to say as little as possible. What does it mean that the committee didn't see its way clear to grant the request? Did they not have enough money? Did the church run out of white people? Oh my gosh, are we out of white people? No, 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 that that can't be it. Because right before the committee voted on Sheaf's proposal, they agreed to transfer a white pastor from Canada to Oregon. So it's clear we're not out of white people. It's also clear that the committee just didn't want to send a white preacher to help Sheaf. And it wasn't hard to figure out why. I mean, what would be the point of the General Conference setting up a white church and a black church in Washington if they were just going to turn around and help Sheaf create a mixed-race church? Finally, Sheaf had been asking the General Conference for a higher salary because living in Washington, D.C. was expensive. The committee dutifully approved Sheaf to be paid $15 a week, which 
is exactly what he had already been paid. So I guess that one's a no. Strike one, strike two, strike three. The first church struck out with the General Conference in 1903. It was hard to ignore the feeling that Washburn's second church was getting preferential treatment, largely owing to the fact that Washburn was a strong supporter of General Conference President A.G. Daniels' Nashville policy. Oh, and this little subcommittee that struck first church out? Yeah, Daniels was the chair of that one too. Now, Daniels was vocal about his support for Sheaf and for First Church. He honestly believed that the Nashville policy was the best way to handle the color line. And Washburn may want to ignore First Church, but Daniels had great plans for that church. His dream was that the educated members of First Church would prove to be a source of black missionaries to black America. In other words, First Church was going to be the First Church of black Adventism. I imagine Daniels' reasoning for denying First Church's request. Washburn had raised that money after all, and it wasn't the job of the General Conference to take some of it from him. Well, as for Sheaf's salary, well, the average salary for American clergy outside of the big cities, you know, in most of America, was $11 a week. So perhaps from the General Conference's perspective, Sheaf was doing just fine at $15 a week. That said, the national average pay for clergy in cities like Washington, D.C. was $24 a week, and by that measure, Sheaf was incredibly underpaid. All of this prompted another leader at First Church to speak out, James Howard. We met Howard last time. He was the black doctor-turned-civil servant who saw Daniels' Nashville policy as an embarrassing abdication of the gospel. Howard wrote a respectful and powerful letter to A.G. Daniels. He also sent a copy to Ellen White for good measure. Howard wrote, quote, I tell you plainly, Brother Daniels, with all respect, that you and your committee are grievously wrong in your cause and policy on the race question. And you are wrong at a time when the world is growing worse in this respect. And so much needs your wise and corrective influence. End quote. In other words, Brother Daniels, you're wrong at precisely the worst time to be wrong. Now, James Howard was not a prophet, at least not in terms of any official title or getting to wear a funny hat or something. But sometimes people seem so gifted with the right wisdom at the right time that it feels eerily prophetic. And that's the best way to describe Howard that I can think of. Howard went on in his letter, and it's worth quoting him at length, so that's what we're going to do. Quote, The compromising plea of expedience, policy, the demands of the world in doing the thing that good may come is too weak and unworthy of our cause. The white people are injured by such a course, not less than the colored people. It would seem that while the people of the world will disregard each other more and more because of national differences, the people of the Savior would be all the more careful not to seem to justify the others in their wicked discriminations. If Seventh-day Adventists 
with their high profession can go as far as many seem disposed to go, it can only be expected that the world will carry the same principles further and commit all the horrors they will. End quote. In this passage, Howard is flipping the script. The script was that recognizing the color line was better for black people, right? It keeps them safe by respecting white's primarily southern prejudice. But Howard says no. Recognizing the color line was not better for black people. It was actually bad for white people. The script was that Adventists simply had to acknowledge the reality of a prejudiced world and to just do their best and work around it. But Howard said, the church is not following the world's prejudice. It's leading the world. If we engage in a little discrimination, the world will follow our example and then carry it much further. All right, let's continue with Howard's letter. Quote, it is difficult to see why it is necessary to make a race line in the Adventist denomination in face of the fact that the truth involves a positive protest against any such thing. It is even more difficult to see why there should ever have been a disposition on the part of anyone to experiment with this church in the interest of a policy of race distinction or to deal with it in harmony with such a policy. The method of making things go a certain way or managing so that they will turn out a certain way surely ought not to be considered a proper method of building up a spiritual work. It would seem better to follow the openings and opportunities made by providence and the Holy Spirit. End quote. Pause. So, so Howard is basically saying, uh, our church was fine. White and black people worked together just fine. We worshiped together just fine. That's where God was leading our church. Why are you inventing policies somewhere else and then forcing our church to comply with them? Why not just let God lead our church however he sees fit? Okay, let's keep going. Quote, We understand the awful meaning to us of the dealing of the General Conference and the Seventh-day Adventist authorities with our church. It does seem, at least, that there is a disposition among the General Conference Committee to make the church colored. They have no right or authority from the Lord or anyone else to do such a thing. And yet... That is the impression that is persistently made both upon the church to whom it is a cause of grief and pain and upon the world at large, among many of whom it is a cause of disgust. Such a policy not only discredits the body of people who profess to be getting ready to meet the Lord at his coming and be translated, but it deceives the world as to the true standard of righteousness, seduces the conscience and heart of the church and renders obtuse its spiritual discernment. I plead not for any fanatical affiliation of the races. That is not desired by either party. But in the name of heaven, the message and righteousness, I plead for a pure and correct standard and practice in this church which professes to be the last. End quote. James Howard believed that the separating of black and white churches was incompatible with what it meant to be a Seventh-day Adventist. He was making a spiritual argument. And of course, race relations were a red-hot cultural and political topic as well. And that's precisely how people like Washburn chose to see it. So Washburn tells Ellen White that, quote, they preach a political gospel, end quote, 
over at First Church. Howard also told Daniels that there was an, quote, excellent opportunity for Adventists to take the true gospel position on the race question here. May God bless you, Brother Daniels, and give you wisdom. In opening my heart to you thus, I am not alone. I represent an increasing host of people in Washington and elsewhere. The treatment of this subject by Seventh-day Adventists is a cause of deep and anxious concern to many of the believers. And if in the judgment these things shall have weighed nothing with you, it will not be because they were not laid bare before you. Yours in the love of Christ, J. H. Howard. End quote. Well, before the judgment, these things weighed nothing with A.G. Daniels, and Howard's plea fell on deaf ears. All right, this would be a great time for Ellen White to intervene. But the fact is that Ellen White mostly stayed out of this. Nevertheless, this issue, like virtually every issue in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, was connected to her in some way or another. Dear Mid McCullough, channeling B.B. Warfield, once said that the Protestant Reformation, quote, was a debate in the mind of long-dead Augustine, end quote. Catholics, Lutherans, Reformed, all claim to authentically represent Augustine. Now, I'm bringing this up here because I think it can also be said that the color line debate within Adventism was a debate within the mind of Ellen White. Ellen White's comments on the color line can be roughly divided as those made in the early 1890s and those made later. Her early comments tended to cautiously push for the integration of black and white worshipers. And then toward the end of the 1890s and especially into the 1900s, Ellen White introduced more and more and more caution into her council, pragmatically accepting that it was too dangerous in some parts of the country to integrate. In such cases, blacks should work for blacks and whites for whites. In the early statements, Ellen White set forth the ideal. The ideal is that the church ignores the color lines and worships together. Her goal in those early statements was to spur the church to get off their rears and do something for black people. After some work had begun and Adventist missionaries to the South realized just how hard it was to do something for black people, Ellen White made more pragmatic statements that there were places where it would be suicidal to worship together. She wrote, quote, The time has not yet come for us to work as though there were no prejudice. Do nothing that will close the minds of others against the truth. There is a world to save, and we gain nothing by cutting loose from those we are trying to help. End quote. Then Ellen White paraphrases Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.23, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Howard, chief, and other black leaders clung especially close to Ellen White's earlier comments. White church leaders preferred her more pragmatic later comments. So James Howard sent a version of his letter to Ellen White, as I mentioned, wanting her to tell him whether to be pragmatic in Washington or cautiously idealistic. Which of her comments applied here? Well, Ellen White's assistant replied to Howard and said that Sister White didn't have any new revelations to add to this topic, and that was that. What did not seem to occur to Daniels and other church leaders is that you could have differing local policies. Because if the goal of all of this 
is to get the church's message out there as effectively as possible, then it seems best to be flexible. The pragmatic policy may help the message in Alabama, but it also hurts the message in Washington, D.C. So if you want to get the message out, you're going to have to be pragmatic in Alabama and cautiously idealistic in Washington. This flexible policy was essentially what Charles Kinney advocated. Kinney was, you may recall, the first great black preacher. At his ordination in 1889, he laid out 12 propositions to solve the color line problem. If you ask me, that's a pretty bold thing to tackle during your ordination sermon, especially at a camp meeting in the South. But Kinney took a flexible position. He supported separate black and white churches. He accepted that in the South, white should work for whites and blacks for blacks. But Kinney also proposed this, quote, that Christian feeling between the two races be zealously inculcated everywhere so that the cause of separation may not be because of the existence of prejudice within, but because of those on the outside whom you hope to reach, end quote. In other words, the church should work hard to stamp out racism within its ranks and remind members that all men and women are equal before God. Yet it's what Kinney said last that has the most relevance to this episode. He said, quote, that these principles be applied only where this prejudice exists to the injury of the cause, end quote. Somehow this call to flexibility, this call to wisdom, went unheard by church leaders in the early 1900s. And this is why James Howard again picked up his pen. This time he appealed to Ellen White's secretary. Please get this letter to Ellen White. Make sure she sees it. He wrote, quote, There is exceeding great danger that if the treatment of our church here in Washington that has begun is continued, it will leave the denomination. Some of us are very anxious that this should not be done, but that the evils should be corrected everywhere in the, in the denomination as they are causing extensive and general trouble. End quote. For a time, things seemed to calm down. Louis Sheaf planted an all-black church in Washington called the People's Seventh-day Adventist Church, and this, of course, made Daniels happy. It's what he wanted all along, even though it made some of the leaders of First Church nervous. Daniels glowed in a letter to Willie White, quote, I think we can please anybody and everybody on the color question, end quote. Because now we have a black church, a white church, and a mixed church. Daniel says again, I think this is ideal, and we shall do all we can to build up the interests of all three, end quote. If Daniels was coming around, Calstrom seemed to be coming around as well. Speaking of coming around, Ellen White came to speak at First Church in 1904. And of course, when Ellen White showed up, so did Washburn. It's unclear how he felt about some of the things she said in her sermon. She preached on John 17, which is Jesus' great prayer for unity just before he dies. And on that topic, she said, quote, We have no permission from the Word of God to gather up reports and tell them to hurt the influence of another. I tried to impress upon the people that we had no time and no vital powers to devote to criticizing each other. Our great work is to keep our own souls in the love of God, end quote. 
All in all, it seemed everyone had what they wanted. Daniels' vision for Sheaf was accomplished. Here was a brilliant black preacher in the nation's capital who was the center of black Adventism. Daniels was leaning on Sheaf to find crops of black leaders, coach them, and help Daniels figure out where to deploy them. One of those was William Green, an attorney who had argued before the United States Supreme Court. Sheaf converted Green, and Daniels shipped him to preach in Pittsburgh. Yet, as the General Conference leaders were finally getting settled in their new offices in Tacoma Park, just up the road from D.C., it quickly became clear that they might as well be in California. Before Green was shipped off to Pittsburgh, he thought he was told to quit his previous job and be ready to report for his first pastoral assignment on April 1. Well, he got April fooled, all right, because she finally wrote Daniels, a little embarrassed, on Green's behalf and asked, what gives? Green was just waiting around for months with no job and no paycheck. And then there was the money. As we said, the denomination had raised $10,000 for Washburn's church, and when the General Conference moved to the Washington area, they raised $100,000 for themselves. Meanwhile, the People's Church was growing, and they went out and bought a $10,000 church. Sheaf and his congregations continued to get nothing. Adventists had shown up in the Washington area like the Israelites entering the Promised Land. A steady stream of workers migrated from Battle Creek to set up shop in this new Promised Land. And of course, when Adventists invade, they build a sanitarium, a school, and a publishing house. You know how it goes. You can say it with me now. These, of course, were the Washington Sanitarium, the Washington Training College, which would eventually become Columbia Union College, and the relocated, once more, Review and Herald Publishing Association. Sheaf and his churches watched all of this with great interest. The question became, are these institutions for us? So another letter was written, this time from the People's Church. The tone of the letter lacks the warmth of Howard's letter. Indeed, this letter is painfully formal. It reads, quote, The People's Seventh-day Adventist Church hereby requests to be informed, specifically and unequivocally, whether its members are privileged to accept the services and benefits of the schools, hospitals, and sanitariums operated by the General Conference, end quote. And if no such schools or hospitals were open to them, could the People's Church use some of their tithe money to start their own institutions? You know, rather than send the tithe money all the way up to the General Conference, the implication of this question was inescapable. We pay tithe. Does it only benefit white people? A.G. Daniels, of course, replied in person, because anytime you threaten to withhold tithe... You will get a reply. Daniel said that the church has never had an official policy on the color line issue and forcefully condemns racism among its members. That may have been technically true, but I'm sure it rang hollow with Lewis Sheaf. With that said, the Washington Sanitarium, Daniels told them, isn't technically under general conference control. So go talk to them, and if they let you use it, great. And if they don't... If you need a school, college, 
then may I suggest you Union College in Nebraska or Walla Walla in Washington State? Really, Daniel said, there are plenty of opportunities if you're willing to go across the country. It was tone deaf and a perfect example of what it was like for black Adventists to deal with their leadership in those days. Daniels was truthful, truthful that neither he nor the General Conference could order the Washington Sanitarium to do anything, but he chose his words very carefully there, and besides, it was hardly the point. Are you going to tell me that Arthur G. Daniels, General Conference President, possibly the most capable elected Avenist leader since James White, the victor of the Kellogg crisis. Are you going to tell me that that man didn't know how to use influence? He certainly used influence to get Sheaf to accept the Nashville policy. And, and suddenly, when it comes to ensuring that black Seventh-day Adventists could use a Seventh-day Adventist hospital nearby, he's powerless. There's nothing he can do. He can't even sit down with the sanitarium board and try, say, hey, you know what, Lewis, good question. I'm going to go talk to them for you. He can't do any of that. I'm belaboring this point because of Lucy Byard. In 1943, Lucy felt something was wrong, and so she went to the same Washington Sanitarium emergency room. She was refused treatment. The reason given was that she was black. And so Lucy Byard, a Seventh-day Adventist black woman, died outside of a Seventh-day Adventist hospital. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not laying Lucy's death at Daniels' feet. I'm only saying that he could have done more. He should have done more. Louis Sheaf and his flocks deserved better than to be told by the General Conference president that there was nothing he could do. It was a perfect example of what it was like for black Adventists to deal with church leadership. Daniels cared, they all cared, but black Adventists were never a high priority for church leaders who handed out to them unfulfilled promises like cotton candy. Louis Sheaf's church never got the money. Oh, and what about Daniels' advice for black Adventists to go to one of the other schools? Well, Theodore Howard did attend Union College in 1929. Howard even won a national award at Union as the best speaker in America. But at school, he was forced to sit by himself at lunch because he was black. At an Adventist school, Howard wrote during those days, quote, If staying in my place will cause me to get through Union with friends, I sure mean to do that. End quote. Sad. Daniels, like many white people then and now, failed to see how deeply rooted, how institutionalized racism was, even in the Adventist world. Nowhere is this blindness more obvious than when Daniels said that the church didn't have and would never have an official position on the color line issue, because to black Seventh-day Adventists, it sure seemed pretty official. Theodore Howard, by the way, would graduate from Union and go on to be one of the most famous civil rights campaigners in American history. He was called the most hated and most loved man in Mississippi. The Jackson Daily News called him public enemy number one, while the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, openly criticized him. 
He spoke in Alabama to a crowd that included this unknown preacher named Martin Luther King and a woman named Rosa Parks. Four days after she heard Howard speak, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. Well, I suppose we should stop chasing threads of the story and get back to the early 1900s, where both First Church and the People's Church had a mutinous look in their eyes. Daniels was present for a meeting, and Sheaf talked about how he suspected the General Conference wanted to take his ministerial credentials away. Sheaf told his congregation that his credentials came from God, not the General Conference. First Church's white elder, Charles Schaefer, demanded an end to segregation in church institutions. Daniels did his best to try and get the churches to see the big picture, that yes, the church makes mistakes, yes, the church needs to improve, but that the church was doing a great work among black people overall, and that this should be appreciated. Nevertheless, things were tense again, and Sheaf got himself out of town. He got himself out of town, but it didn't help that the town he went to was called Battle Creek. There, she found a parallel universe. Here was a sanitarium, newly rebuilt, that would welcome black people. Here was a college, led by A.T. Jones, that would happily enroll black people. And leading both of those institutions were some of Adventism's most talented leaders, leaders who also felt shafted by Arthur G. Daniels. And here in Battle Creek, the once-promised land that had become a Babylon, they were planting the seeds of an alternate Adventism. Sheaf wrote his church back home that he thought Kellogg and Jones were right. For his part, Kellogg complained that the church was, quote, making a color line where it is needless, end quote. And then Kellogg sent the People's Church a hundred dollars. Kellogg knew how to play the game. Daniels, who ended up with a copy of Sheaf's treasonous letter, was undoubtedly furious. This was the last thing he needed, having Sheaf and Kellogg team up against him. So Sheaf was summoned to Daniels' office, yet Sheaf wouldn't budge. The People's Church stopped sending tithe altogether. And Sheaf also worked to block the General Conference president from speaking to his church, or at least that's what Daniel said. Both sides could see what was coming next, but both hesitated to make the first move. Sheaf deserved discipline, Daniels knew it, but he didn't want to make a martyr out of him. George Ida Butler counseled Daniels, quote, My dear Arthur, I think you will have to do some amputating right in Washington. I think you will have to cut Sheaf adrift. End quote. Butler should have been a surgeon. Still, Daniels hesitated, and just as he was picking up his knife to sever the cord, I'm going to drop the whole amputation metaphor, Sheaf did it for him. The People's Church was no longer a part of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. Now that doesn't mean that Daniels didn't give it one more try. He scheduled a meeting to speak to the People's Church, and hopefully to convince many of them to remain connected to the organization. It might have worked, at least a little bit, except Louis Sheaf was ready for it with a rather devious maneuver. The meeting was supposed to begin at 7.30 p.m., but Sheaf insisted 
that since this was their regular time for prayer meeting, that they should have prayer meeting. Okay, I mean, how can you say, no, let's not pray? Okay, so there was prayer meeting. It, it ended at 8.30. Then she said that Brother Daniels is going to get up and speak, but this is church business, so if you're a visitor, please leave. This was tough because the general conference had been advertising this meeting, no doubt hoping that some allies from other churches would show up to help support Daniels and help encourage Chief's members to change their mind. So they were a little reluctant to leave, and Chief just kept repeating, you know what, we're not going to have a meeting tonight if you guys don't leave, and if, and if we're not having a meeting tonight, I'm not inviting Brother Daniels back to speak. He's coming here tonight. Let him speak. You have to leave. This is church business only. So about a half hour later, after he sent the deacons around the room, Chief finally managed to clear out Daniels' allies. So it's 9 o'clock, and that left Daniels alone with a couple of GC men. As she finally, satisfied, got up to introduce Daniels. It was late, and his introduction, Sheaf's introduction, was also a part of his ploy, because he used that time to coach his congregation. This is what he said, listen, quote, We are not here to answer back. I want every member to keep his seat, when Elder Daniels is through, we are ready to dismiss the meeting. We do not propose to have any discussion at all from anybody. End quote. And just like that, Daniels found himself awkwardly standing before a church ready to ignore him. Sheaf summed it up this way, a little proud of himself. Quote, Everybody was as still as the grave. He, meaning Daniels, tried to arouse them, but failed every time. You never saw men more badly beaten in all your life, end quote. Daniels fumed. He wrote to Sheaf afterwards, quote, This cause can move on without you or the church of which you are pastor, but you and those poor people cannot get on without this cause, end quote. Daniels was eager to fulfill his own prophecy. When Kellogg and his famous sanitarium were lost, church built a new sanitarium in Loma Linda. Here, too, Daniels worked to salvage as many loyal Adventists as he could in D.C., and then to send a new black preacher to First Church. But the pain of betrayal couldn't be hidden. Naturally, Washburn, now in Nashville, came out of the woodwork to console Daniels by taking more cheap shots at Chief. This is what Washburn said, quote, I believe that he has been a traitor ever since he came to Washington, end quote. Far worse, Washburn added, quote, The weaker you are, the more you realize what a terrible thing it would be to be under black government, under colored dominion. The more one knows of the colored people, the less he feels to blame the southern white people, who feel that it will not do to let the colored man get on top and it would be a terribly dangerous thing, end quote. Washburn couldn't have made Pharaoh prouder if he tried. That was a wicked thing to say. But his outright racism was in the minority. If church leaders didn't share his sentiments, some were no doubt guilty of paternalism. In any case, Daniels was done with Sheaf, but Ellen White was not. Ellen White took the opposite approach passionately pleading with Sheaf to return, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, but no dice. 
Sheaf defended himself against her appeals the same way Kellogg had. Somebody had influenced her against him. What she was saying wasn't accurate. She had been lied to, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's how you get around not wanting to listen to a woman you believe is a prophet. 1907 was overall a very costly year. It was the year that the church lost Kellogg, finally and completely. It was the year that Sheaf lost his daughter, and shortly thereafter, his wife, to illness. Daniel's fully expected first church to follow Sheaf. And he was perhaps shocked to hear the voice of James Howard rise above others in keeping the church faithful to the denomination. Nevertheless, first church was on the edge, and it wasn't at all clear which way they would fall. Louis Sheaf and his people's church fully considered themselves Seventh-day Adventists. When you don't talk to your sister or your mom, it doesn't mean that you're not part of the family anymore. Sheaf didn't take the Kellogg route or the Canwright route or the route many others had taken and turn into a super critic of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Sheaf kept the Sabbath. He believed the doctrines. And so this was more of a separation than a divorce. And where there's separation? Well... Who knows? Maybe with enough time and space and healing, maybe they could find love again. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, We don't have a sign-up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign-up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.